Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product. Today I am here with Robin Beers. Robin is the SVP of Customer Insights and Experience Design at Wells Fargo. Robin, why don't you start this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Great. Thanks, Eric. I am leading a design and insights group on the business-to-business side of Wells Fargo, so commercial and corporate banking. But my background is in humanities and social sciences, so a little bit of a strange path to banking. I have um, degrees in English, African-American studies and a PhD in organizational psychology. But, you know, being a very literal person, I wanted to um, earn a good living and I heard that they had money at banks. So here I am. Yeah, I've I've heard that too. (laughs) There is is money at banks. So take us through your, your history, how you ended up at Wells Fargo. Yeah, so I came to the fields of user experience, user centered design and research through my background in humanities and social sciences. So in the you know late 90s, I noticed that there were a lot of people working in technology who had backgrounds like mine. And so I was hired by a consulting firm called Sapien and there learned more about how to be a user researcher, how to look at the intersection between people and technology. And then, of course, after the bust, I was given a dissertation fellowship from Sapien, otherwise known as a layoff severance package, and began conducting my research for my dissertation, which was on how people learn in multifunctional teams. And from that, I met some great people from Wells Fargo. And at the time, one of those people was John Sapolsky, and he was leading information architecture in the online banking group at Wells. And he said, you know, we're about to undertake this you know, first redesign of online banking. And the product partner is this like really tall, blonde, outspoken woman. And I think you two would hit it off great because we were both tall, blonde, outspoken women. And so I came in and did all of the user research for the first redesign of online banking and just started regularly being a contract resource for their user research needs, which morphed into a full-time position a few years later. Now I turn around and I've been there 16 years. Awesome. So now you're currently SVP of Customer Insights and Experience Design. Can you talk to us about what that job entails, what teams you oversee, and then maybe highlight an exciting problem that you're trying to solve these days? Sounds good. Yes. So as I mentioned, we're on the business-to-business side of Wells Fargo, And it's a full stack design and research agency. So what that means is we have functions, you know, across the board from interaction and visual design, content and editorial. We have a very mature design systems group, design operations, accessibility, user research, experience strategy. So it's a pretty large team covering a lot of 
concerns in the customer experience and digital experience space. And we're very focused at the moment on initiatives, you know, broadly referred to as digital transformation, but, you know, specifically around transforming how our customers interact with the bank. The business-to-business side has traditionally been very relationship-focused and very person-to-person focused. But as our customers' needs evolve, especially in the time of of COVID-19, which we're in now, we have been laser-focused on taking what were previously manual processes Relooking at the process from the ground up and then digitizing a better way to conduct those tasks, such as applying for loans, onboarding new customers, having them to be able to do any manner of things in a self-service capacity. Now, you mentioned the large team, just ballpark. How, how big? You know, it ebbs and flows with a, a number of um, initiatives we need to support, but we're standing at around, you know, between 90 and 100 people right now. Awesome. Awesome. So you mentioned digital transformation. What's it like being at a large institution like Wells Fargo going through a digital transformation? Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, it really has been a a relationship focused business. And so one of the things when I moved over to the, the B2B side from retail that took me some getting used to was, you know, I was used to talking to my audience about and my partners about being more customer centric. And people on the B2B side would be like, you know, of course, we're customer centric. Like, I know all of my customers and I talk to them a lot. I visit them in person. You know, we play golf together. Like, I really know these customers. But that's a different mindset than thinking about customer centricity from a digital perspective, where you need to deeply understand kind of an aggregate or a synthesis of how do people go through these journeys that they're trying to conduct with us? And how do we have a structured way of designing based on stepping into their shoes and stepping through the journey as they would? And what we've found is, you know, there's such a strong connection between what is happening in the team member experience, the back office, and what ultimately the customer experience is. And When there are pain points in the back office, they automatically manifest as customer experience pain points. And so our transformation really is about transforming both the team member and the customer experience and making sure that as a business, we're not just digitizing what is an inefficient, you know, wasteful process to begin with. Yeah, so a lot of time looking at the actual process itself and how efficient it is before you go through the process of fitting it in in, in, in the digital world, so to speak. Yeah, and doing that in an environment that has a lot of you know legacy systems in place and also a lot of regulatory oversight. And so making changes to those things, you know, it, it means that we have to navigate through a lot of complexity. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And really, are we talking about experience design here? I mean, that's part of your title. Explain to people what experience design is. Yeah, so experience design to me, and I know there's many definitions, is a design practice that is focused on human outcomes. So rather than, you know, putting the systems, the database at the center, or even the, you know, business metrics at the center, it's around you know, putting the humans who must navigate 
these journeys at the center of the experience. And looking at levers around engagement and satisfaction that the user derives from the product or service and the relevance that this product or service has to their everyday lives. So that means that we're trying to match whatever experience we're delivering with how people want to interact with that product and service. And that means we don't get it right the first time. So by definition, it has to be iterative and it has to involve lots of input from those end users. Yeah. And and how does this relate to like design thinking? Yeah. So, I mean, I see design thinking as very similar to experience design, but using the process or approach of of design methodology to an either even wider swath of problem sets. And so, you know, we have people coming to our group to work on problems using design thinking methods that are, you know, in the human resources area or in the pricing area, things that are not necessarily going to end up in a digital experience, but require creative problem solving, putting the person at the center of that problem space in order to be able to go wide, diverge, and think about all the possible ways in which to solve that problem, and doing so in a multifunctional, collaborative manner. And I feel like doing those two things, like looking at things from a a user-centered design perspective, thinking about the experience this really helps create a process for problem framing, right? Yeah, and I like that you use the phrase problem framing because a lot of times, you know, we think in business that we know what the problem is, but I think that design thinking, experience design asks us to step back from the what we think the problem is and ask the question, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? Because Spending, you know, some time framing the right problem will, you know, better ensure that you're actually solving the right problem in the end. And and that's not something that, well, I should say that is something that can be applied not only to, you know, the digital transformation parts of the business, but some of the business processes as a whole. You mentioned HR, right? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I'm trying to think, well, let me give you an example that's not necessarily HR related, but had to do with our merchant services business. And, you know, we had a very long application for merchant services because the underlying assumption of the business was, you know, we don't know how complex somebody's payment activities are going to get or how many, you know, volumes of dollars they're going to bring in via credit cards, et cetera. And so our approach was to ask for all of the information up front from the business person applying for the merchant services account versus, you know, having a different approach, say, you know, stage dating where you can do this amount of volume with just answering these questions. And then if you bump up against the next tier, we might have to get more information from you. And so in thinking about how to change the underlying assumptions of the business in order as a prerequisite to shortening that application, we had to kind of, you know, change the mindsets of our underwriting partners. So underwriting partners had never been to a design thinking 
session before. And we invited them to a rapid prototyping session to ask the question, you know, how might we significantly streamline and shorten this application? And at first in the workshop, they were like, we're here to make sure nothing bad happens, you know, crossing their arms. Like they, they didn't, yeah, yeah. their role is normally as gatekeepers, right? But as we started the process, which is a very, you know, non-hierarchical process of stepping through, okay, first we're going to ideate and get out as many ideas about the problem as, as possible. Now we're going to start, you know, sharing that. We're going to go to identifying our top three ideas. We're going to develop those into a prototype. They started to get really curious and interested in the process of, okay, well, how might we instead of, you know, I'm here to make sure nothing bad happens. And that's really what I think is, you know, the magic of design and design thinking is that it levels the playing field, gets us all to interact collaboratively and creatively without having to sort of cling to our organizational functional areas of expertise, but really think about how might we solve this problem together. Yeah, I like that. Do you have other advice? Like, I feel like product people want to incorporate more users into the development, but they often don't. Do you have advice for them on, you know, maybe some ways that product people can do a better job incorporating users into the development of a product? Yeah, my insights teams are really doing a lot of work on this now, and they've created kind of a mini boot camp for product managers to conduct their own experiments and get feedback from users. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just talking to people and getting their feedback, but then it's not as simple as that either, because when we you know, are putting our ideas out there, it can be very easy to get into a mode of presenting, demoing, selling. Like, you like this, right? It's going to do this thing and it's going to make your life so much better versus, you know, somebody trained in user research who typically has a social science background is much more focused on, you know, putting the thing in front of the participant and letting them, you know, lead the conversation. And one thing I always tell product managers is, you know, first, like silent and listen have all the same letters in them. Like you have to let the the participant lead the conversation. But then when you're getting their feedback, you've got to look for those like, you know, on a scale of one to 10, nine, 10 reactions, because a lot of times, you know, if something's not really working um, with the prototype or, you know, whatever concept you're sharing People will do something like, well, yeah, I think some people would use that. That could be okay. You know, and that's a real signal to product people like there's more work to be done. And it's not eliciting a a reaction of like, wow, this is great. Like if I could have this, this would really help me. But I also think there's hopefully most companies or more and more companies are recognizing that they do need to have people with a research background helping to, you know, systematically connect this, collect this feedback throughout the product development life cycle. Now, do you think large companies, especially large traditional companies, do a good job creating environments that encourage experimentation, rapid learning, innovation, the things you were talking about? I think, you know, that, that, some do better than others. It's a huge focus for Wells Fargo right now in really creating a mindset shift from 
okay, this is how many, you know, features or products we released. This is how many projects we did. Switching from that mindset to an outcomes-oriented mindset, you know, what are what is the value that we're trying to deliver to customers? What is the value that we're trying to create for the business? How are we going to, you know, we know what we need to do, and that knowing is usually bundled up in huge initiatives that can take, you know, months or even years to fully realize. But how do we break those initiatives apart, descale them, create uh, mini experiments that build momentum and also include the voice of the customer at every stage. So I think for traditional companies like Wells Fargo, this concept of descaling, you know, like too small to fail is a skill set that we're focused on and still learning. Yeah. And, and that's about, I mean, I guess at larger companies about, some of it is about change management and, and creating environments that encourage experimentation and rapid learning, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I imagine, I mean, not a, it doesn't sound like it's a challenge at Wells Fargo, but in a lot of other places, that, that's that got to be a, a, a significant challenge, kind of giving people the, the room to experiment and fail. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's sort of the nature of financial services, too, where that's a less comfortable place to be of like, well, we're just going to experiment and, you know, throw this up and see how people use it. I mean, that's one thing for, you know, industries that don't deal with people's livelihood, their, you know, financial well-being and so forth. And so there's a good reason why, you know, we have to experiment carefully and in, you know, closed sandbox environments and with pilot protocol in place and so forth. But I think it's both the practice and, as you were alluding to, the cultural mindset of not placing such huge bets that it weighs the whole innovation process down. Yeah, yeah. And now this is further compounded today, I imagine, because we're in times of great change and ambiguity. You know, a lot of industries are, are having the pivot to user needs that have changed a lot because of, like you mentioned, we're in, you know, a time of COVID. Have you found your team changing its North Star metrics or product roadmaps? Yes. I mean, metrics are a little harder for me to speak to because it's still something that we're trying to get more discipline around is those outcome-oriented metrics. But even in the last three months with regard to roadmaps, Absolutely. Projects that were on the roadmap to enable self-service functionality like e-signing document or passing documents back and forth have, you know, we knew that they were important, but in the time of COVID, they've become critical. And we've been able to see that even, you know, as a huge traditional financial institution, we can up the velocity of our delivery we can turn this crisis into, you know, proving to ourselves that we can more quickly meet customers' needs when and where where they are, whether that is, you know, getting up a microsite and applications for payment protection programs, you know, within a week or, you know, significantly increasing, you know, pulling up the, the timeline for self-service functionality that we're planning to launch, but making sure that launches much, much more quickly. Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine, you know, the times we're in, especially with a lot of people continuing to work remote, 
are just going to accelerate a lot of these digital efforts, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Changing how we all work. <laughs> Definitely. You know, one of the things, jumping forward a little bit, one of the things I wanted to talk about was customer insights. And, and that feeds into like building these experiences, right? Talk to me about all the different kinds of customer feedback. I mean, you must, because of the size of Wells Fargo too, you must get a ton of customer feedback. How do you, how do you help people get through that noise, find the valuable feedback, distinguish between things like wants and real needs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am a big fan of qualitative research. So my kind of favorite combination of customer insights is having data analytics coupled with qualitative research. So being able to see exactly what people are doing on the sites, what their behaviors are, and then using qualitative research to dig into the why. I'm not such a fan of quantitative surveys. I think years ago, people really, they got survey fatigue, and I don't know if they've ever uh, recovered from that. But we just have so much behavioral data at our fingertips that we are able to triangulate the quantitative behavioral data with qualitative user research. And we have a lot of different ways in which we do qualitative research at the bank, including traditional user research, which typically involves showing users prototypes and getting feedback, but also ethnographic research advisory councils where customers are invited to participate in in councils over a period of time. And they're also a peer-to-peer networking opportunity for those customers. And it's very important, I think, to look at the experiences of these, you know, different segments, different industries, and different companies alongside the quantitative data. Because what we've seen that can really affect design decisions is because our executives and our relationship managers are talking to customers all the time, they can get very led to certain stories. So that would be like the qualitative piece, right? But sometimes when we look at the stories from our companies that our customers are telling us about, we need to put them in context to understand, okay, so is this thing that they're asking for that they say they want is it going to work for the broad population uh, that we have? And so for one tool, what we noticed is there were a lot of squeaky wheels wanting some very sort of advanced functionality and organization of the site's functionality that when we looked at the data of how most customers, 97% of customers use this functionality, it didn't match up. These were outliers. They were power users of this functionality, whereas 97% of the people who used this product were in it for less than one hour per year. And so understanding both the qualitative and the quantitative allowed us to step back from the presented problem of like, oh, they need, you know, all this advanced functionality to say, well, maybe this subset does, and maybe it's a digital solution. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a consultative solution that we need to provide for these customers. Interesting. Now, going back to your, your background, you know, PhD organizational psychology, how has that helped you in your job and in tech? And how does that help you unleash innovation? Yeah, so I look at, from an organizational psychology perspective, 
I look at the work of insights and design as trying to understand the out there perspective. So what's going on in the, in the world out there with our customers' needs and wants? And then inside, what's the in here set of assumptions? What are we able to do to reconcile what we understand about the outside with what we're able to deliver on the inside. I think all transformation involves organizational change and requires people aligning around that change. And so, you know, one of the questions I look at is, you know, can the organization support this change right now? If we're, if we're looking at a project that is a huge sort of data and people realignment, we need to understand, okay, what are the barriers with getting to this transformation and what are the people implications and can those barriers be removed while being, you know, sensitive to that all this change is affecting people inside and outside of the organization. And I think, you know, people in their work want to contribute meaningfully. And so I'm looking at what are the circumstances that can make that happen and from a design perspective, I think that's around, you know, reducing hierarchy, as I spoke to before, which is, I think, one of the things that is really key to design thinking and allowing people to align across functions. When we think about product development as a three-legged stool between product technology and design, is everybody, you know, coming to the table understanding the perspective and and the skills that they bring, but also aligning around a shared vision. And then I think it we're also, from an organizational psychology perspective, wanting to create an environment that acknowledges that no one function, product tech or design, has the answer up front, and that we're all dealing with a high degree of change and the challenges of navigating complexity. And so how do we create an environment, again, around sort of reducing hierarchy where people can feel secure and saying, yeah, we don't know how to solve this problem yet. We don't, we're not coming in with the answer, but we're going to follow a process together around, you know, aligning around the right problem. And then we'll slice off pieces of the future and test and iterate those pieces until we work towards these solutions together. And I think alignment and, you know, really being able to have teams that trust each other are a huge part of that. Yeah, I I like that. I mean, you talk about, you know, getting people together to solve a problem and then one, one discipline can't alone, you know, solve a lot of the problems in today's times of great change and, and ambiguity. What, what do these teams look like? Like, if you're talking about solving a problem and redesigning an experience, talk to me about the team that's working on that. So, I mean, there'll be kind of the core team, which will have a design lead, product lead, technology lead. And then, of course, you know, there's people behind them doing the work. And then there are additional layers of, you know, operation support, whether that be, you know, technical and product project managers or, you know, design operations folks, as well as business analysts doing documentation or business process 
architects trying to, you know, to model the current process and hopefully an idealized process going forward. So, uh, and then of course at Wells, there's always legal and compliance and risk. But I would say the core nexus is that three-legged stool of product design and technology. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about building teams. Like when you're hiring, what do you, what do you look for? I mean, obviously they have to fit in with this, you know, design thinking approach with this user centricity, but when you're hiring people, what are you looking for in these candidates? What makes you know that someone's going to fit in and do a good job at Wells and your group? Yeah. So, you know, of course they have to have demonstrated, you know, skills in terms of their craft, whatever they're being hired in for content and editorial, accessibility, design, et cetera. But I think that beyond that, what I'm looking for is an appreciation of diversity, wanting to be a part of a diverse team where that's a core value, having a a learning mindset. And this is really important for our world, someone who's not afraid of getting into solving complex problems because, you know, treasury management lending at the corporate and commercial levels are not things that just everyday people think about and know about. And so, you know, to use an astrology metaphor, I'll be like, you know, this is very like Virgo work. Like Virgo is the sign that gets into the details and, you know, is the nits and the nats. This isn't glamour work. You know, it's not for people who aren't interested in just really nitty gritty complex problems. And I'm also really interested in people's ability to communicate. And again, I think this goes back to my org psych background, as I see designers as consultants, people who, you know, are going to represent their leg of the three-legged stool and be able to not only present the designs, but the decisions behind the designs. Why did you choose to do it this way? What are some other things that you tried and why are you recommending this direction? And then finally, going back to the you know issue of like wanting to solve complex business problems, the willingness to develop that business savvy, understanding the organizational context, understanding the business that we're in and how the design work fits into that. Now, I feel like you mentioned something earlier you mentioned that I really like talking about, you know, managing for outcomes as opposed to output. I definitely see a trend with that in in startups. When I think of startups, I think one area that maybe they struggle in a little bit is the whole experience, right? I think people are good about focusing on the metrics of the outcomes, but maybe not on the journey or the experience to get there. You know, if you were, you know, giving advice to a startup out there that's trying to take more of an experience-centered approach to their, their, their new product development, what advice would you give them? One piece of advice I would give them is to spend a little bit of time thinking about the customer journey and mapping that customer journey out visually. And you don't have to do this with research as a first pass because journey maps that are based on what the people in that startup think are the steps in the journey are a great repository of assumptions. So you do that as a first pass, and then you can take that journey map out to customers and say, hey, is, is this how this process works for you? Is this what you actually do? What steps are missing? 
what steps have we gotten wrong? But I think that, you know, a lot of teams at startups or, or not can just get very focused on the product without realizing that they need to zoom out and understand how that service or product fits into the intended user's life. There's a moment where it interacts and intersects, but there's a lot of context around that moment that deserves deeper understanding, especially if you want to, you know, go from like a mono product startup to a multi-product startup, where else in the journey might you play? You know, jumping on, you know, we've obviously talked a lot about design here. And we're now in this age of, you know, you see a lot more artificial intelligence, a lot more machine learning today, too. How, how does that affect design? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have created a presentation called Design in, in the Age of AI. And I think that one way in which, you know, technologies that fall under the umbrella of artificial intelligence are affecting design is it's making, well, it made me aware that designers have more power and more responsibility to attend to what are the intended and unintended consequences that these design products and services will have in the world. And for, you know, many decades, the sort of pinnacle of great design has been ease of use. And assuming, you know, that ease of use is kind of a conversation or a relationship between the technology itself and one individual person who's using that technology. And now we can see with, you know, all sorts of services like wayfinding apps that, yes, those services can be really beneficial to the driver who's trying to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible, but can have really unintended consequences on neighborhoods that are now, you know, seeing different traffic patterns and congestion come through, you know, previously sleepy residential neighborhoods. And so it it really begs the question, you know, the classic question we ask in, in design is, well, how might we, assuming that whatever way in which we answer that, how might we question will be good for the world. But I think we have to add a follow up question, which is, and at what cost? Because Designing uh, software is political and it's social and it's not just about individuals, but really has the power to shape our world. And we know that from the controversies around, you know, social media and scandals like Cambridge Analytica, you know, can, can change our very democracy. And there's a lot of consequences to having those technologies be automated and algorithms doing things to manipulate our behaviors that the end user can't even understand. I mean, Harvard Business Review research shows that people know that they're under surveillance in terms of their technology use, but nobody really knows, like, and to what degree, what does that really mean? What should I use? What should I not use? How can designers work to kind of expose those schemes that we always used to cover up, like, no, you know, make it frictionless. But now what sort of transparency means that design is acting ethically and responsibly? Yeah, I think that brings up some good points. I mean, 
we often ask, you know, can we do this? And there has to be kind of a follow-up question to some of this of should we do this, whether it's for ethical or moral or bias, you know, reasons. Absolutely. Yeah. So as we're, as we're getting towards the end of uh, the podcast here, I thought I'd, I'd quickly ask you a question about the future. You know, what do you see as upcoming trends that are going to affect your job and, and the way you, we build products? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge question. And just tacking on to what I just said, I think that especially after the events of the past couple months, I think that it's clear that the role of corporations, the criticality of the role of corporations in designing a more just world is going to continue to be a theme. I mean, everybody, every corporation put out statements around, you know, the social justice protests that have been happening over the last couple of months. And this is a departure from the Milton Friedman polemic of the, of 1970 saying, you know, the job of a corporation is to increase shareholder value and that's it. And we now have CEOs who are coming out, who are signing commitments saying, no, we recognize that the place in society of a corporation is also to make the world a better place. And I think within that, it's, you know, kind of signaling the end of viewing technology as just always, you know, perfect and leading to a more, you know, a better, more progressive world. And that technology is is not neutral and data is not neutral and thinking about not just designing products and services, but what kind of society are we designing in the process? Yeah, I, I think I like the fact that corporations now are, are thinking more about their impact on society and, and their ability to affect positive change on society. And I'm not sure what that, that says about our government, whether it's that our government has failed us or that corporations are also there to support that and should always have been there to support that. I guess that's probably a topic for another day, but it's very interesting to see how consumers are also, and even B2B consumers, businesses are also now expecting of their their vendors and their partners that they're, you know, contributing to the world and making the world a better place. Yeah, absolutely. And they're demanding more transparency around that. And, you know, Wells Fargo's been plenty in the news cycles around you know, our sales scandal issues from a couple of years back, but you can just see how, you know, once a corporation is in a media cycle, it gets attached to whatever the topic is presently in the media cycle, whether that's gun control or civil rights or whatever. So it's important for corporations to understand that just as any of us are, you know, findable on the web and their actions and their activities are also transparent and can be and can be found. Yeah. Well, this has been fun. I'd like to wrap this up by talking about uh, you for two questions. First, okay. what's your favorite product? My favorite product is my Sonicare toothbrush. It makes my dental visits easier and more positive. And uh, it doesn't track my behavior and scold me <laughs> and makes me feel great afterwards. <laughs> That's awesome. It only takes three minutes. 
That is awesome. I know my my wife's a big fan of her electric toothbrush. I, I don't know why I haven't tried it yet. You know, I, I probably should. I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm a slow adopter of new toothbrush technology, but I still have, you know, my regular to- manual toothbrush that I put toothpaste on and, and brush my teeth. But I'm going to have to give it a shot. I mean, so many people have, have said that recently that it, it's it's just so much better, including my wife. I guess I should listen. So one, one final question for you today, uh, three words to describe yourself. Courageous, inclusive woman. Awesome. Well, this has been a blast. I've, I've had a great time, Robin. Thank you, Eric, for having me. It was fun.